0: Hi folks, Keith here, and welcome to another episode of Movies and a Meal, the podcast where we talk about movies and more as we enjoy a meal together. Brad has to week off, I suspect due to WrestleMania as much as anything else, but I'm joined as always by Ben. What's up? Hey, i the Brad <laughs> spirit. <laughs> and this week, I'll take the lead as we take a look at three movies out now. The Action Powerhouse John Wick Chapter 4... The art house contender Tori and Lokita and finally my favorite of the week, the Sundance Hit in Theatres Now Thousand and One. So starting off with John Wick chapter four, Ben, tell us what's this movie all about? Well well, well you we are, we are I, I should it. I should say you and Brad have already seen it. Yeah, so, yeah. we, we, we already <laughs> reviewed
1: it. You know, Keith couldn't join us last week, so this is really Keith just uh, doing some pickup uh the quick summary, though, I believe both Brad and I gave it a four and a mm-hmm. half, and we thought it was definitely one of the better entries in the series, maybe even number one. But what about you, Keith? You're, you know, you you saw it a, you just saw it a couple days ago, right? You saw I it just, like a full week. I just
0: saw it yesterday. Okay, yeah. okay. So what do you think? Well, you know, yeah, I missed out on week one, and I you know I liked it almost as much as you guys. You know, it picks up after the uneven uh, number three, which, you know, I, I think I both agree was had plenty of the action, but the story kind of was a little dropped off there. I will say my only real and minor beef with this one comes with the big bad here. Bill Skarsgård is the marquee. He's just a really milk coast kind of villain, and in this kind of world, I expect more. I didn't uh, enjoy throughout the way they poke holes in this supposed menace, and, you know, that added to the fun of it. And, you know, my single favorite line, I think, delivered by the Harbinger to the Marquis, is a man's ambition should never exceed his worth. And that, to me, you know, summed up the Marquis. I didn't like him, but not the worst John Wick villain. You know, but what you're here for is the ultra action, and it doesn't disappoint. And this, along with the dialogue, I've always, you know, built the alternative world of John Wick that really is a comic book realm, as far as anything. You know, it's as good as any superhero movie, and I, lo- I loved it for that. And, and you know, uh, final thoughts, it's just, it really is just a joy to watch Keanu Reeves playing this. He obviously loves it. And you know, Ian McShane and Lawrence Fishburne also just have a lot of fun. I think my favorite, though, was Donnie Yen. It's always good to have new assassin in this world, and Kane, his, his blind assassin, is just so much fun to watch. He and uh, John Wick team up as much as they can. For the finale is just perfect as far as the action you know if you've never seen the warriors um you know i understand not that many people have but if you have seen it the last hours of this is not just you know a tribute to the warriors it is a flat-out remake basically of walter hill's the warriors and it's insanely fun the action just keeps building and building throughout that i think my favorite action sequence though is you know it just shows you how crazy the world of john wick is that this all builds up to, well, we'll take the spoilers off, even though they, they, they did it last week. We movie's you know, been out a week. So. Yeah, well, it all builds up to, you know, a duel. But to get there, John Wick has to regain his, his family cred, and he has to get his family crest back. And to do this, they set him out to, um, you know, take out Akila. K-I-L-A, perfectly named assassin of this kind of world. And that action sequence, which starts off with the um, high-stakes car game, Into the Nightclub, is the best action sequence I've seen in a long time. And not just, not just the way it plays tribute to Walter Hill, but also, even more than the other movies, it plays tribute to John Woo, you know, with the, with the church scenes, the birds. There's just action. They love action movies, and you can tell throughout this. I'll give it slightly less than these guys. I'll give it four stars, but I love this movie. And, you know, Ben and I will get into it a little bit here. The ending is not that ambiguous. But, Ben, do you think there will be a John Wick Chapter 5?
1: You know, I, I talked to Brad about this last week, and I guess it depends. You know, Chad Stahelski, who's the director, mm-hmm. I think he said that, you know, they're going to at least give it a rest for a while. And I think some of the other producers had also said, you know, it's kind of up in the air, and they've kind of left it like that. I mean, if they just ended the series here, I think it would be ending on a good note. But if they want to do one, a.k.a. if... The money is there. We're yeah. really interested. <laughs> um, you know, they could do that too. Like I was telling Brad, you know, they still have a spinoff in the work called The Continental about the hotel. Hmm. I don't know if that'll change a little bit, unfortunately, given you know the the sudden passing of Lance Reddick. I don't know if he how much he was gonna play into it. And then there's also a ballerina spinoff that's gonna star Anna Armas as a character that was introduced in the third movie, but. You know, having seen it a week ago, I really haven't changed my opinion that much. I would say, with something I forgot to say when we recorded last week's episode is that, you know, this movie is a textbook case on why I think the Oscars should have a stunt Oscar. Obviously, like, Keanu is doing a lot of his own stunts, and that man is 58 years old. He's (laughs) running around and jumping, and he's just great. But the amount of stunts and the choreography and just the fact that it's, Super dangerous to do action movies and things like that. But, I mean, you think about, like, what happened with Alec Baldwin and just, like, mm-hmm. what happened. The consequences of, of not being on point for for stunts. Um, you know, it's just, like, if I had to do two new categories for Oscars, I would put probably, like, a best newcomer, rookie mm-hmm. of the year Absolutely. type person. And also stunts. Because they're the only field, I think, that do not get any kind of recognition by the Academy, really. I mean, you know, makeup does, costume, mm-hmm. sound, editing... All the technical people will get some sort of, you know, awards or something like that. But stunt people, I mean, they literally put it on the
0: line. Yeah, and then, you know, like I said, the last hour of this movie is pretty much nonstop action. And uh, the way it's plotted out, like the warriors, they go from site to site in Paris. And there's this scene in particular at the Arc de Triomphe that, where his body takes so much abuse... I think there he's hit by a car. He definitely could have died. I'm not like, you know, i mean John Wick the character. Could have died. There's one where he fell out a window and landed on the dumpster. But this is a cartoon world. I understand that John Wick can survive any kind of things. But you're right. What they go through for this. They need their own recognition. And I think if I remember right from the podcast you you guys did last week, you know, do listen to our full review from Ben and Brad. I believe he made $75 million in week one. That's insane for a non-superhero movie. So the money's there. Yeah, I
1: looked, you know, because I think Brad had wondered if maybe it was the highest. Um, I think Ant-Man and the Wasp is the highest, but that will only mm-hmm. maybe be like 82 or $85 million. Mm-hmm. So it just proves how much, you know, how strong this franchise is. And, you know, we were talking before how it's kind of in a cultural lexicon. Like, you just know when you mention mm-hmm. John Wick and you're like, oh, man, they went... John Wickle and somebody—you yeah. like, know, you know exactly what they're talking about. But. And, and
0: to, script, to, to construct that from their own IP mm. is very impressive. Yeah, you know, I—you yeah. know—you
1: know, you, you mentioned that you, you kind of revisited some of the old ones, mm-hmm. and the first one, you know, it was this close to being just direct to DVD. Like nobody really had any investment into it, and they really turned it into this its own franchise. And you know, circling back what Keith had said, uh, you know it pays homage to, like, you know, these, like, action movies, like The Warriors, which is a a great movie if you haven't seen it. And, but also just, like, its own, it's, like, meta. You know, the club, the club fight in 4 is very reminiscent of the original John Wick Mm 1 and John Wick Mm 2. And, um, you know, again, they're they're just, I think when you, when you have a director who was a stunt choreographer and Chad Strahalski and his partner, his then-partner David Leach, they were... They've known Keanu for years. They were his stunt doubles for The Matrix and everything like that. You know, when you have somebody who already has experience in that, you know the action's going to be great. And then also, they just have an eye for talent and they they want to. That's why Donnie Yen comes in there. That's why Scott Atkins, who played Killa, who mm-hmm. is an action star in his own right in a lot of things, um, you know, he's in there and it's just why it's good. You
0: know, you know I was sure I had seen Donnie Yen before because he's so, such a natural. I'm not sure I have, though. Sure you have. Um, in fact, mm. um,
1: in fact, we, Brad and I mentioned it. He basically played kind of the same character in Star Wars Rogue One. He was uh, <sighs> you know, like a blind, not necessarily a Jedi, but, and, you know, Yip um, Man and, like, Donnie M's just been a lot. I mean, a lot of times mm-hmm. he is in kind of like Slocky B action movies. You know, he was in the last Triple X movie
0: with Vin Diesel and, mm-hmm. and some other stuff, but, well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed then, because I love Rogue One, but I haven't seen a lot of those action movies you're mentioning, yeah. but he was just the perfect addition sure. to this world. He slid right into that role, and he's, he's so good. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, so
1: four for you, huh?
0: Yeah, I you know, you guys give it four and a half. Sure. I liked it almost as much.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, um, why don't I hand it back to you, and I guess we'll talk about the next movie, right?
0: Yes. Um, next, next is our art house contender from the uh, D- Belgian Dardenne Brothers, Tori and Lakita. So, Ben, what is this movie all about?
1: Okay. The summary, courtesy IMDb. Hope I'm doing you proud, Brad. (laughs) From two-time Palme d'Or winners Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardin, Tori and Lakita is a heart-stopping thriller
0: that casts an unflinching eye on the trials of the young and dispossessed. That's a pretty good summary. You know, um, as we said, I missed out on John Wick Chapter 4 in Week 1 because my family and I went to NYC. And we actually saw two movies that are off the trail. I'll mention one real quickly. Axel Roper's Petit Solange is a really good little entertaining movie. If you like French New Wave movies, it's done in that style. It's kind of a 13-year-old whose world is falling apart as her family is falling apart. And But that's a good movie. However, the Dardenne brothers, um, Tori and Lokita, which they correctly described as both the drama and a thriller, is really, really good. Uh, the Belgian Dardens Pierre and Jean-Luc, are favorites, favorites of the Cannes Film Festival. As Ben said, they... Um, They've won the Palme d'Or twice. This one, um, which at the most recent Cannes Festival, won the um, Grand Jury, won a, won a 75th anniversary prize. So not the big Palme d'Or, but it just shows that they love these guys, and they've been doing this for 25 years. They're brothers, who always write and direct together. And Toy and Lokita may not be their best effort, but it's still pretty great. And as usual, it mixes in heavy issues. This time also, though, a story that moves at the pace of a good thriller. So we're dropped into the world of two African immigrants, 11-year-old Tori and 16-year-old Lakita, who struggle to survive together in a Belgian city where peril is all around and life is a constant hustle. But what drives this story is the performance of the two young heroes, and I looked it up. These two have never acted in anything, and maybe maybe, maybe never will again. Um, Who knows? It's uh, Jolie Mbundu as the elder Lakita and Pablo Schills as Tori. And both of them, you know, like I said, they're making their acting debuts, and it's just, they're just raw performances. You give this kind of the reality that the Dardans are known for, and it really, really thrives here. I'm not spoiling too much, because you find out early on, but Troy and Lokita are, are posing as brother and sister, when they, what they really are is, you know, they met, on the, they met on the boat coming from Africa, and they're kind of bonded by circumstances rather than blood, and they kind of get together and they help each other survive. And as Lakita fights expedition back to Africa, the two of them, they survive on their wits as best they can, kind of dealing drugs for a local thug not only to them is the chef. And Schills, you know, who plays the younger, um, the younger, Tor- younger Lottori, is actually, he's, he's the better of the two. They're both really great. But he's constantly in motion and in peril as he works out with the forces that want to do him in. Riding his bike all around this unnamed Belgian city to raise the money he thinks will help Lakita out of her bind. The only reason I can't rate this one any higher is you have to be brace yourself. This is a bleak movie. It, it's always pretty depressing with the Dardans because it's steeped in reality, but the ending of this one is bleak, so it will scar you for a long time. But along the way, it is still pretty thrilling to watch the extraordinary relationship of these two outstanding actors. And for that, despite its very bleak ending, I'll give Tori and Lokita three and a half stars. I don't know where you'll be able to see it. Um, you know, I saw it at, like I said, an arthouse theater in New York. I think it will probably be streaming Dardan's kind of stuff appears on Prime, but if you like their movies, uh, keep an eye out for it. This is normally where we do Rotten Tomatoes.
1: I already look as a preview. There isn't an audience for probably, because, again, it's probably mm-hmm. just not readily available. So you only have to guess the critics' score this time.
0: Oh, wow. Um, I didn't think about it because I wasn't sure there would be one. Um, <laughs> the people always like their movies, but like I said, this one's a little bleak, so I'll go 85.
1: Okay, almost, almost spot on, 87. Okay. Critics' Consensus, uh, courtesy of Rotten Tomatoes, another humanistic gem for the Dardance, Tori and Lakita puts his characters in heartbreaking circumstances while insisting on their intrinsic dignity.
0: Uh, that's very accurate. Like I said, you had just have to brace yourself. Okay.
1: All right. So, on to the next one,
0: Keith. All right. Well, next up, we're keeping it not quite in the art house lane, but it is the Sundance hit, A 1001. And Ben, what is this one all about? Sure.
1: Summary: Kersey, IMDb. After an unapologetic and fiercely loyal Inez kidnaps her son Terry from the foster care system, mother and son set out to reclaim their sense of home, identity, and stability in a rapidly changing New York
0: City. That's a very good summary, and I'm glad they mentioned you know the rapid, rapidly changing New York because that's as much what the movie's all, this movie is all about. You know, I enjoyed the few movies I was able to see at this year's virtual portion of Sundance, but, you know, they're rightly pushing the live festival more as it goes back to being live. And so this one, it's the debut and from writer-director A.V. Rockwell, but it, they made its premiere at the live portion, which I didn't get to see. But it's been well worth the wait, because this movie is really, really pretty stunning. I knew it was a big hit with the audience and critics, because following in the footsteps of heavyweights Minari and Coda. It brought home the coveted Grand Jury Prize. I still didn't really expect it to pop up here, but I'm definitely glad it did. In the movie, Tiana Taylor plays, for lack of a better word, a hustler, who as the movie opens is just getting out of Rikers Island in the early 90s. And you can tell from the opening shot, a pretty stunning aerial view of the humongous Rikers complex. This smart movie will be as much about NYC at that time, the early 90s and into 2000s, in particular the dawn of the stop-and-frisk policies and boom of gentrification as it is about Taylor's Inez de la Paz. But don't let that take away from just how amazing the R&B singer, dancer, choreographer, and wife of baller Iman Shumpert is in pretty much her big screen acting debut. Her portrayal of Inez, a wounded fighter we want to cheer for even if she makes some baddening decisions, is a real star-making turn. As she's out of Riker, she spots the now seven-year-old son she had to leave behind living in a group home. After learning he injured his head in a foster home, she makes the life- and movie-altering decision to abduct him from the hospital so they can make a life together in Harlem, and be the family she never had. As Ben said in the summary, I'm not spoiling too much there because that's kind of how it, how it launches it, but the range of emotions that Inez runs through in that one scene as she decides to abduct him from the hospital is just staggering, and it sets in motion what becomes a real acting showcase all around. Her son Terry has played a trio of young actors as the story spans about 10 years, and they're all her equals here. Aaron Kingsley, Editola, A. Van Courtney, and Josiah Cross play Terry at, respectively, 6, 13, and 17 years old, each in layered performances that give Terry more depth than the usual child part gets. As a wary and scared child, but also one with a natural intelligence, slowly comes out as he grows. Throw into the mix Lucky, and as his longtime lover and eventual husband, and a volatile situation becomes even more intense. But here's how Rockwell plays with our expectations in many clever ways. William Catlett who I've loved for a long time. He's in Lovecraft Country, The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, Black Lightning, and a lot more great TV series. He plays the ex-con Lucky with, at first, a menace that's meant to toy with our audience expectations, but he eventually develops into an ambivalent and but still devoted father figure for Terry. I tell you much more would be a real sin because the beauty here, beyond the acting showcase, is how Rockwell doesn't just tell the story of an unconventional family as much as drop us right into the middle of this world where each setback is matched with a fragile victory. What sets this apart for me from movies like Precious is that while it certainly is intense, there's a hope that permeates the saga of Inez and Terry that keeps you going and cheering for them both. Now, there is a twist in the third act of 1001 that certainly complicates both the story and our view of Inez, so I won't tell you anything about it. It's one that will divide viewers, but what makes you question Inez even more, but for me, it just made me that more invested in her story and the story overall. And, you know, we were in, like I said, in New York just last weekend, I was talking with my dad and my brother about how long it had been since we'd seen a movie not just entirely filmed in NYC, but about the city itself. You know, what makes this movie so strong beyond the acting is that Rockwell really delves into that Juliana, into Bloomberg era of New York, and how stop and frisk and really gentrification just changed the city forever. For that portrait and, like I said, the uh, strong performances throughout, I will give this four and a half stars and. I don't know how long it's going to last in movie theaters. I looked it up. It, I didn't think it would come here, but it made 700,000 in one week, which is pretty good. If you like art house movies, I would recommend 1001 while you can see it.
1: Okay. All right, so it's time for a run. Tomatoes, uh, we do have two scores on this one, so you want to guess critics and audience.
0: Excellent. I will. I'm going to go critics. I know even with the ending, I think critics like this one a lot. I will go a little lower than Dardennes. I'll go 80. Okay. And the fans, I will go 90. You know, kind of close,
1: but um, <laughs> actually low. So critics, 96%. Wow. Audience, 84%. Huh. And the critics' consensus is, a tribute to parental devotion and a testament to Tiana Taylor's talent, A 1001 presents a heart-wrenching portrait of perseverance in the face of
0: systematic inequality. That is a great description. I will say, like I said... Once you get to the third act and you find out the nature of the true relationship of Terry and Inez, it will divide viewers somewhat, but that made it all the more intriguing for me. So search this one out yeah
1: I was interested you know uh, I think we saw a trailer for it maybe in front of some other movies mm-hmm. like Shazam of all things okay so I don't think we have anything else to talk about right do you have anything else to add no
0: I don't think so hopefully yeah. Brad is enjoying Wrestlemania <laughs> and he'll be back next week <laughs> well you want to do the blogs, that he sure um, you can reach us at movies and a meal og at gmail.com and find us on movies and a meal tw- on twitter and you know give us a listen on iHeartRadio Stitcher the Podcast or wherever you find your podcasts okay all right Well, I think for this episode
1: of Movies and Meals, then I'm Ben and Keith. All right, see you.